as we begin, let's remember that what Israel didn't understand is when they rejected Jesus, they rejected God. They rejected God's word. When they rejected in days gone by, in days of old, when they would, their forefathers, for example, when they rejected the prophets and crucified and killed the prophets, they were rejecting God. The ones of the, that led the nation, though, in their rejection of Jesus, as we've studied along the way, have been those false spiritual leaders called scribes and Pharisees. How many times? In Matthew chapter 23 alone did he say, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Instead of receiving Jesus, they rejected him, they hated him, they despised him, and unfortunately, so sadly, ultimately, they had him executed. But not only that, they also were involved in killing, as I mentioned just a moment ago, those that would represent Jesus, and therefore, Jesus pronounces judgment in this chapter. In this sermon, this is the climax of the Lord's ministry. He had come to them. He had preached to them. He had articulated the gospel to them. Now, you might say, now, wait a minute. I thought the gospel was preached for the very first time on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, yes and no. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, it was the first time that the gospel was preached with an opportunity for someone to respond to it. But Jesus articulated the gospel, the good news. He preached about his own death. He preached about his own resurrection. He preached about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He preached about and referred to the church, the greatest institution in all the world. He gave them opportunity after opportunity to repent and to believe him, but they did not. In fact, their rejection is now final. And the rejection is led by the scribes and the Pharisees that confront Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, gives them a list of confrontational woes. Seven woes. I'm going to tell you, if you ever think for one minute that the Lord doesn't have something negative to say from time to time, just take a look at what he said. He condemned them for various reasons. He gives them seven woes or seven curses, and these were they. Number one, he cursed them for exclusion. And that means that they rejected the gospel, but in order to do that also, they discouraged others from accepting it. Have you ever stopped to consider the magnitude of that? It's one thing, it's one thing, if I reject the gospel, if I reject the truth in my life, that's one thing. That's a choice. That's a choice that I have made that I'm not going to follow Jesus and I am accepting the path, whatever that is. That's one thing. I'm hurting myself. But it's entirely different and, and uh, it's worse when you keep others from accepting it. That's what they were guilty of, of exclusion. What else? The second woe, perversion. What does that mean? They influence people to follow their man-made self-righteous traditions. Now let me just make a quick point about traditions. You know, in the Bible, Jesus talked about the traditions of your fathers. He talked about the traditions that they were uh, accustomed to under the law of Moses and so forth. And following the traditions of your fathers. And all of those traditions had come to an end or needed to from a spiritual perspective. But in the New Testament, there are traditions that we must keep, and that is apostolic traditions. 
In other words, we keep the things by, by way of apostolic tradition or the things that were preached. In other words, that's the apostles' doctrine. That's the things in the New Testament that we must follow. That's the word of God. And when we follow apostolic tradition, we are following the word of God. Therefore, we are following the Lord. What else? Subversion they were guilty of. That's undermining and substituting truth for a system of lies. You know, I'll tell you, that is the perfect picture of a false teacher. And we've talked about this. I'm not going to go into this very deeply. I just want to make one point. You know, there's a difference between someone that teaches something with all the fervor in them because they believe it to be true. And they could be mistaken. And it doesn't necessarily make them a false teacher. A person could be mistaken and not be a heretic. A heretic were these people. What they did is they willfully substituted the truth for a system of lies and then taught it and then drew a party or a sect unto themselves. That is the very definition of a heretic. That's called subversion. And Jesus condemned that. What else? How about inversion? Remember that last time? Talking about reversing all the right moral perspectives. We talked about the weightier matters of the law. In other words, he said, you strain out the net out of the liquid, out of the cup. Because you don't want to eat anything unclean, and the net was the smallest unclean of all creatures. You don't want to do that. But you swallow the camel. And in that illustration, the camel there, by the way, was the largest unclean thing that they could possibly eat. And what he's saying is, you're straining out the net, but you're swallowing the camel. Why? You are neglecting the weightier matters of the law, like mercy, justice, and all of that in truth. Mercy, justice, and all of those things that fall in that category. What else? Extortion. In other words, they cleaned the outside of their act, but stealing from people every ch chance they had. What else? Deception. They appeared to be models of virtue, but they were like a contaminating grave, and they defiled those who touched. Remember what Jesus said about that? Jesus said, he said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. And you remember what that was? They would whitewash the sepulcher with lime for the purpose of letting people know when they came into Jerusalem for the Passover, don't touch that grave. It would make them ceremonially unclean. You know what he calls them? You're like that. You are one of those whitewashed sepulchers. What was inside the sepulcher? Dead men's bones. Oh, I love to hear the, the Lord preach. Oh, I love to hear him preach. Finally, they were guilty of pretension, pretending to be pious, pretending to be better than all those that preceded them. In other words, we are better than our forefathers that have gone on before us that have killed the prophets. Jesus said, you're not better at all. In fact, you're worse. They were plotting to kill the son of God, the greatest prophet of all. Now, in climaxing this section, though, to these false leaders... In verse 32, he said this. He said, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Now, just a little detail about what it means, the phrase fill up. Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Now, the father's guilt, by the way, is referring back to the forefathers that killed the prophets. Okay? That's what it's talking about. But then he commands them. Remember that? He says, do it. Fill it up. 
Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. In other words, be done with it, get on with it. But what does that mean, fill up? Let's notice that for just a minute. The phrase fill up is a term that's used oftentimes in Scripture in connection with sin and judgment and wrath. In fact, very frequently in Scripture, the image of a cup being filled to the brim is used in connection with God's divine wrath. In fact, you might read in the book of Revelation, for example, it talks about a cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's fury. Isaiah talked about that in the Old Testament. So did Jeremiah and so did Hosea. It's even indicated in Matthew later on when Jesus in the garden said, remember that? When he's praying to his father and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I told you this before, that when I grew up in my lifetime, I thought, well, that's just a cup of suffering. That's too easy, way too easy. The Lord wasn't afraid to suffer, by the way. And you know what? All those martyrs that took their death and they just took it and said nothing, they're no better than Jesus. What really bothered Jesus? It was the cup. The cup of what? The cup of God's divine wrath. Do you know why? Because God placed the sins of the world on Jesus on that cross. And that's what he knew he had to endure. When I was done with that sermon the last time, when I kind of mentioned about that, I walked right past Carl Elliott, Carl Elliott and he quoted uh, Hebrews 12 and 2, and he's right. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the shame? The cup of wrath. The cup of sin. He was perfect in every way, God's lamb. But the cup was filled to the brim. And therefore, because of that, so was God's divine wrath on the sins of the world. How about that? It's a picture that judgment and wrath and sin, they all go together, by the way. Sin always brings the wrath of God. It always has. Sometimes in Scripture, the phrase, the cup, is a cup of sin. Sometimes it's a cup of wrath, and sometimes it's a cup of judgment. And by the way, they are all related, and they all come together. They all work together. And in this case, when Jesus is speaking to these people, he had reached his limit. i got to tell you something. I'm studying this last night, right? I'm looking over this, and I looked over that idea where God finally had enough. And I got to thinking about that a little bit. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered the fact that sometimes we can be so rebellious for so long? What if God had enough? When we pray for people that are out of duty and not doing the right thing, what do we always pray? We pray that they have time and opportunity. So we're asking God to give them time and opportunity, and prayerfully he will. But have you ever stopped to consider that there may be a time when God's just had enough? That's what Jesus was telling them. The long-suffering of God and the patience of God had been wasted, had run out, and God had enough. The cup was full. So you know what Jesus said? He said, do it. Fill it up. In similar words was spoken by Jesus to, to Judas. Remember that? Now I'm going to tell you something. I don't believe for a minute that Judas had to come into this world and God made him do all the bad things that he did and reject Jesus and sell our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. 
just for the purpose of having him take his own life. And then the Bible says, and he went to his own place. That means he went to hell. That's what that means. Okay? I don't believe for a minute that God made him do any of that. And I do believe with all of my heart that if Judas would have repented, the Lord would have taken him back. Absolutely. But here's the power of God. This is how powerful God is. Before Judas was ever born, God had infinite knowledge that that's exactly what would happen. That's the point. Do you remember when they were in that room together and they were eating the Passover one final time and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? Do you remember who was laying on his right? It was John. Remember who was laying on his left? Which, by the way, I read, was the ultimate place of honor. Who'd he put there? He put Judas right next to him. He reached out to Judas over and over again. But guess what? God finally had enough. And Jesus said, what the, Whatsoever thou doest, do it quickly. Go. Be about it. So when the cup of sin is filled to the brim, God poured out his divine judgment and wrath regarding Israel. Now, it isn't that God desired it, or Jesus even desired it. It was that God knew it. Jesus knew it here, and Jesus just simply said that because he knew they were plotting his very own death. Now, I want to notice the passage with you. It's Matthew chapter 23, and I'll put it on the screen. And I want you to get this idea for just a minute in your head, if you will. We were talking about, I was talking about this to someone this morning, actually. And uh, we were talking about what is the religious ethic or when did the, when did the rules of hermeneutics change in the religious world? Well, in about the 60s and the 70s, there was a new hermeneutic in the land. In other words, you didn't follow command, example, inference. You didn't do that. You didn't do that. All of a sudden, the new hermeneutic for interpreting scripture was called the Jesus ethic. And here was the deal. Since Jesus was so wonderful and loving and kind, he would never have said anything bad to anyone. He wouldn't have done that. So let's throw out all the retribution. Let's throw out all the judgment. And let's just love and preach Jesus. Okay. Was Jesus the epitome of love? Absolutely. You know what he called these men that day? You're serpents. You are brood of vipers. That's what you are. That's interesting about that too, by the way. In the, in the King James, it says you are a generation. That's what brood means. Or by the way, it means family. He said you're a family of whatever these guys are. Okay, well, let's find out what those guys were. Because in general, he said you're a snake. It's kind of like if I would say, man, those guys, those people over there, they're snakes. Okay, that's bad enough. You know what he says? He takes it a step further. He didn't say you're just snakes. He said, you are a generation of, and it's this Greek word right here, and it means vipers. What is that, though? What were they? Interesting about that. And by the way, just by describing the kind of snake that a viper was back then, they would know exactly what he meant. He would make his point. They knew very commonly what it was. Vipers were little, tiny, skinny, small, poisonous snakes that were found in the deserts of Israel. And you know what they look like? They look like a, like a twig, like a stick. That's what they look like. Now, 
When I think about that, when I thought about, when I studied this out and wrote this sermon, I thought, you know, uh, I'm thinking like kindling. Kind of like kindling. You're going to build a fire. Everybody knows about that. You've got to get some kindling. You can't just throw a big old log on there. You've got to get it going, right? Okay. I'm thinking about a twig like that. Well, they were very common in the desert areas, and they looked like sticks. I also read like this. They would actually, because they were that conniving and deceiving and bad and awful and all that stuff and mean, these little vipers, they would lay completely still until something came upon them, and when they least expected it, they'd sink those teeth in, and they would be bitten, and they would be poisoned, and they would die. Jesus' ethic? He called them a snake. He called them a viper. He called them a deceiving, conniving, terrible, deadly, poisonous snake. That's what he called them. Interestingly, by the way, that's exactly the snake that bit Paul. In the book of Acts, remember that? God spared him miraculously. Poisonous snakes were hard to detect. They were deceitful, deadly sometimes. And that's what he calls them, your deadly poisonous snakes. But there's more too. These poisonous snakes were became such a connotation for evil. And I'm talking about this word right here. It was such a connotation of evil, this word being used. Okay? And evil and deception. That in ancient Greek mythology, do you know what they called the God that was half woman, half snake? They called it this word right here. She appears to be a beautiful woman, but she's a snake. Ancient Greek mythology. You don't think they got that idea? That You don't think they understood what the Lord's talking about when he called them that? It was no compliment at all when he called them that. And there was no generalities about that. By the way, that in Greek mythology, that was a, that was a monster-like woman that appeared to be a snake. Now, notice this right here, though. And I, this is really beautiful because he continues the same imagery. Same imagery. So he says, snakes, brood of vipers. Then he says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, notice with me for just a minute. Hell here, this is Gehenna. Okay? That's not talking about Hades, the Hadean realm. That's talking about Gehenna. And that's obviously the lake of fire. So he's asking them a spiritual question, but they would understand exactly what he meant. Because in Gehenna, it was a city waste dump. People took their trash and it burned all the time. And you know where it was? It was just outside of Jerusalem. Just outside there. And he says, listen. He was telling them, if you reject Jesus, how are you going to escape the condemnation of hell? That's from a spiritual perspective. But you know what? He kept the imagery going pretty good, didn't he? You know why? Because fires were very common back then, too. You know what they would do? They would take a farmer. Would, they'd come and they would, they would cultivate the land. The crops would grow. They'd cut the crops. And then they'd have stubble. And when stubble remained... When it remained, they would come in and the farmer would burn the stubble off the land. You know what happened to these little rascals here, these vipers? They would come up out of their hole and they would wiggle like this and try to get away. And you know what else? They never got away. Do you see the point? And they're not going to get away from the fire of God either. That's the imagery that he's putting forth. They would come out, 
And here's the condemnation of his sermon here. Or the, the condemnation is the climax of his sermon. And folks, you can't outrun the, the, the fire of God. And I'll tell you. I'll tell you. There's someone that knows everything about us. There's somebody that knows everything. And if people reject what's right, folks, for whatever reason, they fall into that category, but they can't escape it. There's going to come a time when I got to give an account for what I've done, too. All of us. And whatever it is, we can't escape it. So what he's saying here, this is not just for them. This is a picture. It's a picture from a spiritual perspective. If you reject Jesus, how are you going to get away from the fires of God? Now, he says judgment is coming and coming fast. Look at verse 36 with me now. He said, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, the Lord's point is summed up as follows. Fill up the cup. Fill it up. Go ahead. And that was in killing the Savior. They also filled up the cup too, by the way. This is very important. Very important. After this time, for those that came like the apostles that were killed because they preached Jesus. What about Stephen, the first martyr? Stephen in the book of Acts is stoned to death. That would be a man that would come after Jesus in the name of Jesus too and stand for what is right. And he lost his life. What about all of those ancient worthies in the New Testament times that stood for the truth but lost their life? They all fall into the same category. And he said, all these things will come upon, very important, not the end of time, but this generation. And I'll tell you, we're not talking about Matthew 24 today about the things described in Matthew 24, but Matthew 24, I believe, is the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe it's all the destruction of Jerusalem. So when the Bible says one is taken and the other is left and so forth, that's not the rapture that people are teaching today. That's not. It doesn't mean that, that one guy's getting yanked out of here and the other guy's got to stay. That's not what that means. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But I don't have time to go into Matthew 24. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, what's he talking about? Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33, and that's the date that it was just now. 37 years later in this generation is 70 A.D., and that is the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the judgment against the nation of Israel, though, was only a symbol of eternal damnation for those that reject Jesus, obviously. Now, there were those that believed that were in their midst. We know that. How about on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. So there were people that were saved. But he's talking about the nation of Israel that used to be God's people. That's what he's talking about. But judgment did fall, folks, in AD 70. Luke calls it this. Luke calls it the days of vengeance. Now, just a bit of history here. If Jesus was crucified in AD 33... In A.D. 66, there was a revolution that broke out against Rome. In other words, they got sick and tired of Roman oppression. And by the way, remember when Jesus came in to Jerusalem, they thought, oh, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. We're sick of Rome being bullies. They thought he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. 
Well, in AD 66, you know what happened? There was a revolt against Roman oppression. And they said, we're not going to take it anymore. Now, zealots came into play. You know what a zealot was? A zealot was a political party, or zealots were a political party that were aggressively anti-Roman. I read that they did this. They were, if you had to put a name on them, it would be kind of like terrorists, I guess you would say. Because they were the guys that had daggers in their cloaks. And what they would do is, they would sneak up on a Roman guy, and they would stab him with a dagger. One scholar said, these zealots were kind of like this. If they had bombs in those days, they'd have set them off. They'd have been the guy that did it. So you got zealots fighting against the oppression of Rome. You got a, you got a revolution going on. AD 66. All that's going on. In fact, in May of 66, in May of 66, though, Rome struck back. And they started a bloody battle in Galilee. And they slaughtered Jews north of Galilee, in the north, in Galilee. Finally, Titus, who was the Roman emperor, came down to the city of Jerusalem with an army, get this, of 80,000 men. Now, you know what's really neat? Is you get all this from the writings of Josephus. Now, outside of the Bible, I think it's pretty neat, outside of the Bible, that I can, I can sit there at my desk and I can look up on my bookshelf, one of my bookshelves, and I can see the writings of Josephus. And I actually have writings. I actually have a book. Many of you probably do too. I have a book that was written by a man that was there. He was there. So when he, read, when he writes the account of what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem, I think it's pretty important to listen. He was there. He said this. He fills in some information about the 80,000 men army. They surrounded the city. You know what the Jews did? Can you imagine this? Kind of fitting. You got 80,000 men, troops if you will, surrounding Jerusalem. And inside, you got Jews making fun of them, snickering at them and laughing at them. Seriously? You got one of the pow most powerful armies in the world, and there's 80,000 of them, and they're surrounding you, and you're making fun of them. Not a good idea. Josephus said it's beyond description to tell what happened. The Romans who were outside the city, they had the Jews captive in the city. A Jew that was outside the city and was not inside Jerusalem was automatically killed and they would crucify them. And you know what they would do? They would make sure that all those crosses were visible for people that were in the city to look out and see their own people hanging on a cross. When a Jew was caught, he was crucified outside the city and there was no way to escape. It was a very common Roman technique, by the way. They stripped the hillsides, get this, of all the trees, and they made war machines. They made great big machines. They made a catapult machine. Now, i got to figure this in my mind. I can't hardly figure it out. Uh, very primitive days, right, back then? And they built this catapult thing, many of them, and it would sling a 600-pound boulder. And it would go over the wall, and it would crush buildings. It would crush people. And they made it from wood, obviously. They made battering rams and weapons of wood. 
When they would do that, the Jews would try to set all those things on fire. See what Rome did? They went back out to the, out to the forest and they took more trees down and they kept on building. And I'm going to tell you something that happened. I think there's a huge lesson here. On the inside, the Jews turned on each other. There was a revolution inside too. I don't know why. It just popped in my head when I came over here to pray a minute ago. It just popped in my head. I, I don't know why. just did. But I thought about this. Isn't it true that sometimes when there's great pressures placed on us on the outside and there's a battle that is raging from the outside, that sometimes because of the stress of that, we turn on our own people? We turn on our families or we take it out on our families. Have you ever had something going on in your life and it was so difficult on the outside? You couldn't hardly stand it, but you had to behave on the outside. So you just took it out on each other when you got inside. That's kind of what happened. The pressure was so great in this war that Jews turned against themselves. Jews turned against Jews. They sealed off the city, Rome did. They starved them. Famine was huge. It was an unbearable stench. And I don't mean to be graphic, but I want to make the point. The death was so high that they took the bodies. They took 100,000 bodies that died inside the city and threw them over the wall because the stench was so bad and the decomposition was so bad. On the outer part of Jerusalem, it was covered with dead man's bones decaying. Unbelievable. Finally, the temple was destroyed in August of 70 AD and the Roman soldiers came in and they came into the temple location and they lifted up their banners in the holy place and they sacrificed to their false gods. And then Caesar ordered that the whole city of Jerusalem be torn to the ground and it was completely leveled. The only thing that was left was a small part of the western wall. And according to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. In addition to that, 97,000 were taken captive and placed into prison. Now, one scholar said they hauled 115,000 corpses just out of one gate alone. But I'm going to tell you something that Josephus said that I think is amazing. Get this now. This is, a real, this, is, this, is, this is amazing. You know why? Because this doesn't happen without God. You don't think God takes care of his people providentially? You don't think that? Listen to this. Don't worry about all the stuff that's going on in the world. God takes care of his people if he chooses to do so. You know what happened? Josephus said that before Caesar gave the order to level the city, for whatever reason that nobody can understand, I can, nobody could understand, the Roman armies pulled back and every Christian got out. How about that? I'm going to say it again. Did you hear that? Every Christian got out. You know, there's a Bible passage that deals with this. It's one of the most misunderstood passages in the, in the New Testament. I'm going to try to clarify that for us today. It's, it's 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. And incidentally, this was written in A.D. 66, four years before the destruction of Jerusalem. 
For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Notice this right here, very much misunderstood. For if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? You know what people say that means? They say it means this. You see, you got all these Christians, all these members of the church, all these Christians. But only a few of us are getting in. So among the righteous, among the Christians, only a few are getting in. If that's the case, what chance does the world have? What chance does the ungodly have? What chance does the sinner have? That is not talking about the end of time. That is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And when the armies pulled back, they scarcely or with difficulty got out. That's what that means. Do you know why that has to mean that? You cannot interpret one verse of scripture to mean one thing and another passage to mean something else and it contradict itself and be true. Do you know what he says in 2 Peter? In 2 Peter he says, not we're going to barely squeal in. It says in 2 Peter, we're going to have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. That's not the end of time, folks. That was the destruction of Jerusalem. And do you know what Peter was doing? He was encouraging them to hang in there. But you know, that's not the end of the story today. The Lord not only spoke words of judgment, but he spoke words of compassion and sadness. Please look at these words. The Lord found no pleasure in this. He took no pleasure in this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. You, re you refused the Messiah. In verse 37, his words are filled with sorrow. Do you remember when Jesus on Sunday made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? He had tears and he wept over Jerusalem. Here again, he is deeply grieved. Tears of lament over a people about to have the hand of God's protection removed from them and be turned over to Satan. Now, interestingly, do you know when the Bible has examples of times when a man repeated himself? It's interesting about that because there are many cases in the Bible where somebody repeated the words right back to back and it dealt with an expression of extreme emotion. Extreme emotion like this. Remember in Luke 10, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. What about Luke 22? Simon, Simon. What about Acts 9? Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Maybe the best example of all is in 2 Samuel. Listen to this. This is the cry of anguish and the heart of David over a son. See that coming. He said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son. If only I had died for you. My son, my son. 
Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. From the bottom of his heart. He said this. I wanted to gather you, you children. I wanted to gather them together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted to say, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I wanted to say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what I wanted to tell your children. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. But you were not willing. You know something about that? It's all about a choice. The message of salvation is, is there. The invitation is extended. But we all have a choice. He said you weren't willing. And because of that, for Jerusalem, the city and all those in it would be destroyed. Finally, in Matthew 23 and 39. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Can you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I got to tell you about this word comes here. This does not mean some commentators are wrong. Some commentators are wrong. This does not mean when he comes out of the grave in three days. There were times when Jesus spoke of specific things that would happen while he was still alive and what he would do when he was risen. When he was alive, you remember what he said. They said, who are you in John chapter 8? And Jesus said, you'll know who I am when I'm lifted up. Okay? Specific time, specific event. This right here is not when he's resurrected from the dead. And it's not symbolically when the gospel is brought to those in Acts chapter 2. What this means is, what this means is, you're not going to see me anymore. He just spoke words of condemnation. You're not going to see me anymore until you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is the judgment. The Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus is Lord. And that's what he said. You've rejected me. He gave him words of doom and condemnation. And he says, oh, by the way, you won't see me again until then. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.